This podcast is produced by students in the University of Pennsylvania's pre-health post-baccalaureate programs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the podcast creators and our guests, and do not necessarily represent the views of pre-health programs. To find out how the University of Pennsylvania can help prepare you for health professional school, visit upenn.edu slash prehealth. Hello, listeners. You're listening to Dean Wirtz with uh, University of Pennsylvania's Pen Pals, bringing you Philadelphia's stories from a distance. And today we have Dr. Morgan Philbin, who is a social and behavioral scientist whose work explores how social cultural factors impact the health outcomes for vulnerable populations, particularly sexually, mo- sexual minority youth. Dr. Philbin completed her postdoctoral fellow in the Division of Gender, Sexuality, and Health, the HIV Center for Clinical Behavioral Studies at Columbia University. And feel free to take it from there, Dr. Philbin. Thank you, and thank you for having me. So as a brief background on who I am, um, I did my master's and PhD in public health, um, both at Johns Hopkins at the School of Public Health there, and my work was focused on health behavior. And most of my research was with people who inject drugs and people living with and at risk for HIV. And so based on that was how I ended up doing the postdoctoral fellowship that I did at Columbia at their HIV center. And given where the HIV epidemic is, much of that work has been with sexual and gender minority populations. So the main projects that I'm working on right now, and I'm happy to talk about whichever ones are of most interest to you, is looking at how state-level policies impact substance use and HIV risk for young people, with a primary focus on policies like um, opioid-related policies and marijuana-related policies. And I am also still working in the HIV lane and have been doing research on interest in PrEP. So as many of you know, right, PrEP is a daily pill that can prevent HIV but we've just finished phase three trials and found that long acting injectable prep is actually superior to oral prep. And now we've finished the trials in men, cis women and trans women. So knowing that that will soon be with the FDA and the FDA is also in the process of approving long acting injectable art for HIV treatment. So I've been working in that as well. Excellent. Starting off um, a lot of your, you know, uh, literature, includes the idea of the sexual minority. Could you define what that is for us? Yeah, I think it's interesting. The way that we have talked about things in public health for so long has been quite binary, which is easier to quantify, but incredibly problematic in terms of its lack of accuracy. So we initially referred to LGBT, so obviously lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, but those tend to be binary, non-overlapping categories. There's also the tension between identity and behavior. So instead of saying gay men, we've switched to a language of men who have sex with men, because obviously not every man who has sex with a man identifies as gay. They may identify as straight or queer or questioning or any number of things. And even now, people have become more aware and better about accepting that there is a spectrum of sexuality and gender. And so using terms like sexual and gender minority it is not perfect. It is still sort of creating this population in comparison to the heterosexual majority. 
but it is better than sort of forcing people into these boxes of checking, you know, LGBT. And particularly now, as we're acknowledging more the importance of including gender non-binary folks, there is no, you know, letter for that in LGBT. And so trying to use broader terms around sexual and gender minority, particularly because of the way that individuals like that are treated in broader society, both sort of interpersonally and the stigma they may face within families, but also from a structural perspective and what is codified in law. So if we think of like the rights at say the federal level for people with sexual and gender minority identities that were codified under Obama, obviously Trump has pulled them. It's a whole other story we can talk about, but um, thinking about, you know, making sure we can actually understand the lived experiences of people who do not necessarily fit into these boxes that public health has created that don't actually reflect reality. So instead of using titles, you're using actions and the idea of men that have sex with other men, not identifying them as a sexual orientation based off of that action? Yes, and So oftentimes what we'll do in quantitative research is we'll have three types of questions. So we'll have questions around identity. So, you know, this can be depending on who does the way, who words these questions, you know, gay, straight, lesbian, pansexual, queer, questioning other, right? However many lists you have. There can be, do you have sex with two sort of men, women, both? Mm-hmm. And there is the, there's a scale of attraction. Like, are you attracted purely to people of the opposite sex, mostly the opposite sex, equal, my sex, my, like, so trying to categorize it that way. So you get identity, behavior, and attraction, but that is all sexuality. And so then you also have to ask about gender, because obviously, as you know, those are very different things, although sometimes people conflate them. Um, and so making sure that simply because somebody says I am a male and I, you know, am mostly attracted to men and have sex with men, we don't know if they are cisgender or transgender. And so that's also important to think about in the way that we engage not only with the research, but the implications for the interventions that we develop and making sure that they're targeted to populations in a way that is relevant to them and that they will be able to access um, and making sure that we include that population in our work so that we hear from them exactly what they need. So talking about the uh, like drug use policy and how it's affecting, how is it directly affecting youth with drug policy that's going on, especially in recent years with the legalization of marijuana and what that has to do with the, the grand scheme of uh, drugs in general? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think I just want to note that it's particularly important right now is we've seen not only the increased legalization of marijuana. So up until last month, it was 14 states in Washington, D.C. Now in the last election, I believe New Jersey, Arizona, Montana, and I think South Dakota also legalized uh, marijuana. And so it is something that is happening in some ways much more quickly than some people expected, particularly given the fact that it's still illegal at the federal level. And also given that Oregon just decriminalized small like um, drugs that people possess in the amount just intended for their own use. So really thinking about the way that substance use policies are driven and why. And I think there are a number of reasons, particularly the discussion around marijuana has been that legalization matters because of the differential enforcement by age, race, ethnicity, and other. We also see this around sexual and gender minorities. And so there has been a social justice push that we need to think about this, not just because there is no reason why marijuana should have been labeled 
as harmful a drug as it was. And we can, if you want, we can go back into the sort of racist history as to why that was. It was actually done politically as a way to try to drive a wedge between people of color and white Americans and getting voting privileges. And so there's an incredibly racist history that talks about why it was that way. Because you as, you know, as someone in medicine know that there is no reason it should be in the same category as heroin, right? There's n- nothing that that makes sense in terms of the way it is scheduled as a substance. That being said, even with recreational marijuana being made recreational, we are still seeing some of the same health disparities in arrest rates. So overall arrests go down, but we're still seeing racial disparities. So it is necessary, but not sufficient. The research that we have done so far um, actually has shown that medical marijuana and recreational marijuana laws are associated with an increase in marijuana use among adults, but results have been mixed among youth. When I say youth, I mean 12 to 17, 18, um, because above 18 is the age or 21, depending on the state at which it becomes legal to use. Um, And I think one of the reasons why people think we have not seen this effect or just starting to see it is that the data lag behind where we are. So it is 2020 now, but we're getting data from 2018. There were not that many states in 2018 um, that had legalized marijuana. So most of our data is coming out of Washington and Colorado. So those are more similar states in terms of sort of other liberal policies, in terms of attitudes toward marijuana. So the jury is still out on exactly what the implications are for young people. Um, so it's important to keep do, to keep researching and to do more qualitative research to really understand if we see shifts, why is it, right? Is it changing norms around how dangerous it might be, around how easy it is to access? Is it something that just sort of falls into the category of like, oh, in the same way that I'd like have a glass of wine, you know, at dinner with my parents that we'll just like smoke a joint together. Like we don't know all of that information yet. So that'll be really interesting to talk about. And I think for young people, there is some concern around the developing adolescent brain. So as researchers, we're not saying like all weed is bad, you know, the sort of just say no Nancy Reagan approach. It's not that at all. That's actually not helpful in terms of having a discussion. It's just thinking about, you know, when and in what ways should people use it as we move forward? Because obviously as it becomes legal, it is going to happen. So we need to talk about it as it's happening. Hmm. Okay. And how do you think, like, what would be a good way of educating the people? Because I know that we, there's still research on the developing brain, but how to educate people on appropriate use, because there's a lot of guidelines about how to use alcohol responsibly, where that's, like you said, like there's a lot of gray area in marijuana usage. Yeah, I think it's something that we're still figuring out on all levels, right? I mean, we think of regulations around blood alcohol content, right? 0.08 for driving, we can all cite that stat. <laughs> But we don't really know for marijuana how to regulate that because given how it's ingested, who ingests it, the strength of whatever you're using, like there's so many different ways and we don't even have a great way of measuring it in, when I say in the field, I mean like if someone's pulled over, right? Um, And so I think it's really being able to work together between social and behavioral scientists and more of the neurocognitive people to figure out what is the best way to approach this. And I think what we're going to get into, I'm sure, is the abstinence only based, you know, just don't do it, which I would argue, yes, from a developmental perspective is probably safer. And also that's not how life works. And understanding that like adolescents are going to drink and they're going to smoke cigarettes and they're going to smoke weed or now, you know, weed brownies or gummies or whatever. And so thinking about how do we have these conversations around a sort of harm reduction approach of, what makes the most sense versus a just don't do it at all. 
And we'll see in states where it's legalized, those conversations may be easier to have because maybe norms have shifted or if a parent is using weed, it's harder to turn to the kid and say, oh, we can't talk about this. It's scary versus mm -hmm. just like, it's, well, it's the same with sex, right? Like let's have a conversation about condoms versus yeah. just don't have sex. So the sort of broader harm reduction approach to things I think is the way to go. Yeah, when you said that, I immediately thought of uh, the best contraceptive is abstinence <laughs> when, we were, when we were growing up being told that. So I think that you have a point where, although it will be probably counterproductive, it will be a method that will likely be used. So um, what is HIV? Because we, we were talking a little bit about your introduction about your involvement in HIV research. What is its relevance now as opposed to uh, HIV outbreaks earlier or in the late 20th century? juxtaposed to right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I think for a number of reasons, HIV has started moving out of the popular consciousness as something that's, you know, sort of, quote, just another chronic illness, quote, not a big deal. I mean, now we know through mathematical modeling that somebody diagnosed with HIV in their early 20s is going to have a, a normal life. I mean, I say normal, have a, the same average lifespan as anybody else. But because of stigma and because of the way that HIV is distributed within the population, it has not actually gone away, I think, in the way that a lot of people imagine. It has simply moved into populations that are more vulnerable. So as you may know, we've done, I say we, meaning like the broader public health community, there's been mathematical modeling done through the Centers for Disease Control around the risk for, say, a young Men who have young men who have sex with men of color. So at the rates HIV is going, a young black man who has sex with another man has about a 50% chance in his lifetime of acquiring HIV. It's about 25% for Latinos. So those sorts of stats don't mesh with this idea that it's, you know, quote unquote, not a big deal anymore. But I think it has just moved into populations that most people do not see or come across. And I think a lot of the young people that I work with, their risk of acquiring HIV is very real because of these multi-level factors that they face. And it's everything from stigma from family and friends in the church or being kicked out of the home or not being able to get a job because you grew up in a neighborhood where the schools were pretty uniformly terrible and graduation rates were quite low. Or you go to get a job and somebody doesn't want to give you a job because you're a black male or because you dress a certain way or because you're transgender. And so really facing barriers on all levels. And we know that drivers like homelessness are a huge risk factor for HIV. And so really understanding that it is not that these young people are doing anything different than anybody else, but their risk profile through no control of their own looks quite different because of the factors that they face, because of their race and their ethnicity and their socioeconomic status and their access to education and employment. So really thinking of that in a broader sense. And I think for certain populations, it's quite easy to move through the world and feel like you never know anybody that's living with HIV, but that's not actually true. There are many populations for whom it is still quite a huge burden within the communities. And now kind of bringing it full circle, do you think with these vulnerable communities combined with the idea of legalizing the ability to have drugs that you're only using for your person will at all cause a spike in HIV cases in these vulnerable populations, given that um, like hypodermic needles and other modes of, uh, or other vehicles for uh, illicit drug use. Do you think there could be any kind of relationship between those? Interesting. I, I don't think necessarily, I think one of the main 
well, a main risk driver too for HIV is incarceration. And if more drugs are legalized, the risk of incarceration goes down because we know that police disproportionately target people of color, predominantly Black and Latinx individuals. And so if their ability to arrest people, not that they still won't because we know stop and frisk and people planting things and all of these issues are real, I think that that takes out one of the bigger risks. Also with legalizing weed, for the most part, people do not smoke weed and engage in risky sexual behavior. That link is stronger between methamphetamine, cocaine, things like that. We are seeing, and this is a whole other sort of side of what I do, we are seeing risk associated with cocaine, not with HIV, but because it's being cut with fentanyl. So we're seeing overdose risks from stimulants, which we didn't used to. So I think in places like Oregon, what will really the impact will be is more around arrest rates than around risk behaviors, because it's not as if somebody says, oh, now it's legal, therefore I am going to start using cocaine, right? Like it is a it is more that it is a, if I'm using it, I won't be arrested versus the other way around. Um, so I think it also would mean that if somebody is using substances as a coping mechanism, understandably so given the world that they live in and mm -hmm. the stigma that's there, it may actually open up the doors and what we're hoping is for people to seek care and support and whether that is going to a needle exchange or talking to somebody about challenges they're facing, then that is going to be easier because it is no longer illegal. So we hopefully, and we've seen this in other places, we'll get more people entering care and treatment than we might otherwise as substances are legalized. And we've seen this in other cities around the world as they've legalized substances too. Okay, so mostly a drop in incarceration will lead to the positive outcomes of less HIV transmission. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and more ability to get people into care, right? So if somebody is injecting heroin, they're going to be reticent to go to an needle exchange program or to go to a safer injection facility if it's illegal, if they're going underground. But if it is legal, not only can they go, we see this in Vancouver, not only can they go, but they can talk to somebody and be like, hey, you know, I actually have this question, like, maybe I could try to get off heroin and get on methadone or, you know, others, other ways of getting into treatment or like, hey, I have this abscess, can I talk to you about it? Versus going to a doctor and the doctor's like, oh, how'd you get that abscess? Oh, because you're injecting, like, you know, and there's a lot of stigma around that. So I think it really is important to keep this sort of broader harm reduction approach to meeting people where they are. And like, if they want access to means of cessation, great. And if they don't, that's fine too. And we just need to make sure that we have the ability to support them and make sure that there is a lower risk for overdose and abscesses and whatnot, HIV transmission in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And do those um, kind of, I don't know if it would be transmission vectors in terms of talking about uh, incarceration versus um, drug use and the vehicles you use for that. But I also heard that you do sometimes work with sex working populations and how it's affecting them. Mm -hmm, I have, is it, yes. Is it a similar pattern do you think is being seen or that you've researched also in terms of are they also being incarcerated? Like what is the demographic of those getting incarcerated for this drug possession and how it's affecting HIV transmission? Yeah, so it's primarily, it's hard to answer straight directly because it depends what city you're in. Of course. And because of these, like, this idea of intersectionality, there's so much around somebody may be selling sex and they may be using drugs and they may be a person of color and they may be sex or gender minority. So 
it is sometimes a little bit hard to tease out exactly what would be driving a given arrest mm -hmm. um, or what rationale police officers are using for a given arrest, whether or not justified. And so we have seen this in some of the work that I did in Tijuana, where there's almost this kind of slight song and dance between the Department of Health and the police officers, because the needle exchange program was sanctioned. I saw this in China as well. And, but the police officers would then hang out right outside the edge of the needle exchange program. So I lived in China for a couple of years and was working with people who inject drugs. And oftentimes they would go to the needle exchange program or they would go to the methadone clinic, but they would be using methadone and also maybe injecting a couple times a week. And so there would be obviously traces of heroin in their system and then police would arrest them and screen them. And so we're having this completely unproductive tension between public health and public safety. Um, and so I think it's, it is hard to tease out sort of which piece is driving it. But I think people who sell sex are particularly vulnerable because they cannot always negotiate because of economic vulnerability to have somebody use a condom. Or if they have a partner with whom they inject, oftentimes women are second on the needle. So if their male partner has something, something meaning HIV, hepatitis, they are more likely to also um, be exposed. So there are a lot of broader gender power dynamics at play as well. Going a little bit more into the just research side of it, how does the qualitative side of the research affect this uh, public health and the research you're doing with your different populations? Yeah, I think qualitative research is incredibly important because quantitative research can show us associations between things. It can sometimes tell us the mechanism, but it's really hard to know exactly how things are playing out on the ground until we actually talk to people and hear their voices. And so often we'll have programs that on paper should work just fine and we implement them and they don't. And it's because nobody talked to people and people will tell you like, oh, the idea is great, but that location's terrible or those hours don't work for us for these and these reasons. Or you actually put it right next to a police station so nobody's going to go. Or for example, when they were doing tests, uh, excuse me, large scale, like randomized trials for prep for women, the trials show that it wasn't effective. And which is surprising because we knew from a bench science perspective that it should work. And they didn't include qualitative research in that study. And when they did, they realized that what had happened was the women were getting the pills, but many of them didn't feel like they were at risk for HIV. So they were giving them to friends or family members who they thought were more at risk. And they were like, oh, I want to protect you. You need this. Or they joined not because they wanted the pills, but because it gave them access to money and health care that they needed. Mm -hmm. And so when they actually started doing the blood spots, they realized that people weren't taking them. So among women who were taking it, it worked quite well, but they didn't think about this broader social structural context. And I think that is one of the pieces that qualitative research can really help us learn about and think about when we're creating studies. And more often than not, although it is much more than this, qualitative research is used in the formative research phase. So at the very beginning, when we go into a place and think about, you know, what does the community need? And we work with them directly and say, what is most important to you? What do we need to learn about? Okay, if we're going to create needle exchange, a methadone clinic, a building a you know standard of care sort of community clinic, what does that need to look like, right? And getting their voices from the beginning. So it's both around implementation and also research in and of itself of defining the problem and making sure that we're actually hearing from people because otherwise, as many of us have learned, it's just research is not going to give you a fully flesh out account of what's actually happening unless you talk to people and hear their ideas. 
Huh. And thinking with that in uh, the realm of how you were working in the East and working in China, I know that there's a lot more of a cultural stigma around medication use in general in mm -hmm. China and uh, Eastern Asia. Did you find any issues with that of people just being like, I, I don't agree like with taking medication. I don't like the concept of this. It's interesting. Not so much around taking medication. I think it's different types and approaches. People tended to be more familiar with vaccines and injections and oral pills or comfortable, I should say. People didn't like methadone, not because it's a medication, because they would talk about they didn't like the side effects. They didn't like the withdrawal symptoms when they would go through, um, you know, trying to wean off of methadone. They thought the color was strange. So I think there are other broader cultural norms that came into play when I talk to people about why they began or when they began using drugs. Many of them framed it around the opening of Chinese cultural culture more generally. And as China opened up in the late 90s, or sorry, late 80s, early 90s, more drugs kept coming in from Hong Kong. And so it was interesting how people really framed their individual behavior in this broader sort of cultural reopening of China to the broader, to the world. Um, so I think that is important to think about. And yes, there are definitely different norms across China, but across China more specifically. So by that, I mean, for the most part, I worked in Yunnan in the South, which borders like, you know, it's in like Thailand, Burma, it's the Golden Triangle. There's also a lot of heroin use in the Northwest in Xinjiang, which we're hearing a lot about because of China's mistreatment of the Uyghur population. And that is completely different. It's a um, Turkic speaking Muslim population borders Afghanistan. So like what will work and what the norms are in one part of China is so different than another. So thinking about that more broadly when scaling up methadone was actually quite important and something the Chinese government, they were great at just kind of scaling it up and building it as that government is for better or worse, but they didn't tailor it enough to make it actually as helpful or useful for, for the populations that okay. needed it. Okay. So what would you, I mean, and this is a Big question uh, going along with this. Like, what would you do moving forward to kind of help promote getting help, promote getting uh, people the help that they need, whether it's not going about the whole not doing drugs is the best way to manage a drug like idea and how to tailor it to the people to make it both socially acceptable and approachable? Yeah, I think one of the very first things that we need to do is to move away from the narrative that substance use is some sort of moral failing. And I think also understanding that not all substance use is inherently problematic. I think there's this idea that we have somehow created that alcohol use is, is more or less fine. Most, you know, a large percentage of the population does it socially. Yes, some people are, you know, drink more than others, but we've sort of created this normalized language around alcohol use and increasingly marijuana use. And yet understanding that people can use cocaine or heroin or many other substances in a way that doesn't affect their day-to-day -day lives. And there's no reason that that should inherently be labeled as problematic. And so I think it is reframing the way we think about substance use and we think about people who use substances and so I think there's that first piece of use that is done in a non-problematic, doesn't affect people's lives. We just need to, you know, leave them alone and they can do what they want. And then also for people for whom it is a problem and that it does affect their daily lives and their relationships and ability to hold down a job or have a place to live, we need to actually support them and to meet them where they are versus criminalizing people. So if somebody comes forward and says, 
you know, I've been using heroin, say, for example, and I'm really scared about overdosing, what can I do? Our role is to say, that's really, really great. Let's talk about ways we can work with you. And if somebody is ready to try and quit, we can talk about that. If they're not, we can say, great. In the meantime, like, here's some clean needles and here's some Narcan, right? So which can reverse overdoses. So make sure you have it, make sure your friends have it. We need to make national level policies so that you can call a police officer if your friend is overdosing and you're not going to get in trouble. And some states do have good Samaritan laws. Some are better than others in the way that they're worded in terms of actually protecting people. And we need to keep the police out of it. Like it is a public health problem. It is not a criminalization problem. And I think where we have seen the best outcomes are cities where that distinction has been made. Vancouver is probably the closest. It is not perfect, but it is much better than the United States. I mean, Canada pretty much is for everything at this stage. Um, and thinking through like, okay, let's get people housing, right? Like it is not, we tend to focus so much on the drug, but it's like, it's not actually about the drug. It is also about, does somebody have food? Do they have a place to live? Do they have a job? Do they have mental health services? And thinking about it from this broader wraparound perspective versus just this like, oh, you are doing something wrong. You are a bad person. Like you need to hit rock, rock bottom. Like all these problematic narratives that we have around people who use drugs that really just serve to continue stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. And uh, since this is a human, uh, I don't want to say issue, but it's a human situation. Do you think that also the management of the use of these drugs has to be handled off of the introduction to them? Like how maybe someone had an older figure uh, that kind of not passively pressured them into starting drug use while others have family drug use, while others see in media and seem, that seems pretty cool. How about I try it? Or they're going through a hard time and they hear that this could help them. Do you think that also plays a key role into how to manage quit, keep going with that? I think it all does because in those different situations, why people are using and the risk of use in a way that becomes potentially a substance use disorder is quite different. So somebody whose you know, friend cousin is like, hey, I have a joint, do you want to try it? Is very different than somebody who maybe has an underlying mental health condition that is going to interact with substance use in a way that may facilitate addiction or who comes from a family with intergenerational trauma where that is a coping mechanism where they were exposed to say alcoholism at such a young age that that is all they knew. And I think that goes back to the point around we problematize drug use in a way where oftentimes it's not actually problematic. And so making sure that we can have these sorts of conversations so that we can actually support people and keep them healthy in ways that are useful and not put energy toward things that are not. And, you know, we spent so much money on the sort of just say no or dare or all of these programs that have no real basis in the data, right? Mm -hmm. Same with abstinence only education. It doesn't actually work. And we know this and like some work suggests it may delay sexual onset by a little bit, but once people do, they're much less likely to use condoms, which is way more of a problem, right? Like the issue is not, are you having sex? It's are you having sex that you want to have with a person with whom you want to have it in a way that is safe, right? From STDs, from pregnancy, like that is the issue from a public health perspective. And so making sure we have these conversations in ways that are productive. And I think that's something that is important, not just from a public health perspective, but also 
from a medical perspective, if you have pediatricians and adolescent medicine providers, and I think potentially more pediatricians, like if they've been treating someone since they were six months old, and now that person's 14, 15, 16, like you have to have that conversation about sex. You have to make sure the parent is out of the room. You have to ask if it's, you know, who are you having sex with? What gender? Like, and have it in a way that is not stigmatizing or that young person's never going to talk to you. Right. Or they're going to only talk to their older siblings or the internet. And that's where they're going to learn about things, which like, you know, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So I think it is really important to make sure that we have these conversations around things like sex and drugs that may seem uncomfortable, but are just a fact of life. And we need to get better about it. Absolutely. And I can't phrase it any way other than the way you're saying is beautiful in the sense of healthy drug management. Even you can, be a functioning human while also using these substances and you're not morally a monster or something like that. And I think it's a very interesting thing to think about is where is a worse issue? Is it using these drugs or is it tackling the weight of the world without them? Like being, being someone that is like, I'm not doing the drugs because of this moral stamp people have put on it, but I am dying on the inside. And I think that's a, I think that's another interesting kind of other side of the track that mm-hmm. haven't done them and you can't like, you haven't done them, but you're morally like on the fence. And how do you feel about that situation? Yeah. I mean, I think that people cope in very different ways mm-hmm. and we need to have the full range of access to services that allow people to cope in a way that is productive and very often there is an association between substance use disorder and mental health diagnoses and because of the way and this is a whole other conversation the way our healthcare system has defunded mental health services and we saw this in the 80s when Reagan defunded it and basically pushed people out on the street we cannot really successfully address one without the other. And there's so much stigma around it, around both substance use and mental health and getting treatment for mental health issues and finding a therapist and for some people, you know, a psychiatrist that will prescribe drugs. And for some people that even getting drugs like that are prescribed by a psychiatrist feels like a moral failing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that is incredibly problematic. And we have created systems too where certain people cannot access mental health services, both structurally, but also, for example, a lot of um, police officers who carry firearms, you know, if if it goes on their record, if they access mental health services. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to do that, or if they have security clearance. So I've had friends of mine whose partners have refused to do it, to access services that they desperately needed. Right. And so I think we, again, just need to have this broader conversation in the way that medicine and public health treat substance use and treat mental health and thinking about what does a person need to cope? And that looks very different. And I think we've tended to either throw, you know, depending what it is, right, anti-anxiety meds or anti-depression meds or, you know, cognitive based therapy, but understanding there's so many other ways that that people need to approach things and what works for them. And I think I go back to this phrase of like meeting people where they're at. But truly, I think that is our job is to figure out what a person needs and understands that everything is sort of a one-on-one relationship, right? From a provider's perspective, what does that person need? 
not like, you know, here is an option. I'm giving it to you, even though it's not actually useful for you. Yes. Okay. So like patient care versus just health. Right. <laughs> and also really like the patient. I got you. Yeah. And so often like the initial ask is not the ask, right? Someone comes in presenting with something, but that's not actually why they're there or that's not actually what the underlying condition is. And I mean, I'm sure you know this better than I do. Friends of mine who are providers always joke about like the most productive part of the entire visit is like the 15 seconds as somebody's walking out the door and they're always like, oh, by the way, da 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 And you're like, that's why you're here, right? Mm-hmm. And so making sure that we can have those conversations in a way or if somebody's saying like, you know, hey, I have a problematic relationship with this substance. Okay, what happened? You know, is it because there's some underlying, you know, mental health issue? Is there abuse going on? Like sort of let's talk about what's going on behind that versus just saying like, oh, you need to get off that and everything else will go away. Right. So making sure there's a broader conversation. And do you think though we are going a little bit at least starting going in the right direction? Because a lot of what I've been seeing recently, because I don't know too much about all of that we've been talking about today. So I appreciate you handling my ambiguous questions, but um, about how I think it's even interesting, even if you look at the history of comedy and stand-up comedians, where they moved from kind of this like bing bong zany little worlds that they would create to moving to slapstick. And now a big part of comedy is kind of talking about mental illness, bringing up self-aware things. Music is being more vulnerable Mm -hmm. in a general sense. And even the idea of therapy. I mean, even moving from my parents' generation to our generation of handling mental illness and it's okay to go to therapy and honestly sometimes it's even cool that people are going to therapy and it's I think that do you think that using the positives of that change might be able to get a drug and sex conversation started more effectively yeah I mean I think our generation I think things are changing however our generation is still a specific segment of the overall people with whom we share an age bracket, right? Yes. And so I think we do have to acknowledge that the conversations you and I have with our friends are very different than some other people for, for myriad reasons. I do think the idea of being in therapy is incredibly helpful and it's great that that is a part of our conversation. I, I sort of joked with my friends when I was in grad school that basically every single one of us, right? Like we were all in therapy, we knew the names of each other's therapists, right? Like. And, and that was just what it was. And it was so normalized and it's incredibly helpful. And I think that that is important. And I think we can, to your point about some of the comedians, I mean, even going back another generation, like, you know, the Belushi's, Chevy Chase, like there's so much drug use and mental health and, and that happened, you know, challenges in that era and being able to not just say, oh, that happened, but like, okay, yes. And like, let's talk about it in a way that is productive. So I think we are moving forward in a way that is useful, but we still have so much more work to do at the structural level because Mm -hmm. it is only going to move forward if people actually have access to services, whether it's because insurance covers it, whether it's because it's a clinic that's walking distance or there's a bus that goes there, or they're even willing in their family to talk about the need for it. Right. And so I think there's still much more that we need to do on all levels to ensure that people who need it can get access. Absolutely. I think there'll, like you said, it will take a lot of work to get there. But uh, I think, I guess, to close off, just talking to those that are kind of in the gray area, especially considering now, and you know, when people are listening to this 30 years from now, we're going through a pandemic right now. So people are especially existential and dealing with their own 
problems. And uh, what would you say to those kind of not knowing where to go from here, whether they be using substances, thinking about it, uh, thinking about sex, thinking about like the safety of their family, even now about being around other people. And now it's even being around strangers is more unsafe now. And uh, kind yeah, of. I think it's all, I mean, there's the, the issues we talked about more broadly around making sure people are given the means to keep themselves safe. And so if that means knowledge around, is this drug that I'm going to use safe? Is it laced with fentanyl? Is it laced with something else? Do I have a clean needle? Do I have somebody around me in case I overdose? Is it around being able to have those conversations? I joke with some of my friends that, you know, with working with HIV, we've had these discussions for so long about like, how do you talk to a partner about safe sex, right? How do you talk to them about hey, I really want to use a condom, or are you on birth control, or when's the last time you were tested? And now with COVID, that because of the formations of pods and bubbles, we're like, dude, everybody is now in a polyamorous relationship, and y'all have to have these conversations of like, who are you seeing? Are you wearing a mask? How long ago was that? Have you been tested? And so it's these dynamics that like, we have been living for so long, and all of a sudden people are like, wait, I have to talk about like, eh, you know, and people get so awkward about it. And you're like, yes, it is strange to ask somebody that you don't know that well, like, Hey, like, who have you seen lately? And what at risk, you know, did you take the subway? Are you at risk? But like, it also is not easier to ask somebody that you're hooking up with to wear a condom, but we need to do that too. And I think it's creating an environment where people feel not just comfortable doing what they're doing, whether that's sex or drugs, but actually talking about it. Because that's the only way if we normalize these things and destigmatize that we can actually move forward in a way that keeps everybody safe. Because again, we're not saying don't do it. We're saying, you know, in the same way with COVID, we're not saying don't ever see another human, but it's like, yeah, maybe meet outside and wear a mask, right? We're not saying don't have sex, but use a condom, you know, same thing with drugs. So I just really think it is making sure to take this harm reduction, non-stigma approach as we move forward. And that probably goes with anything, right? Not just sex, drugs, and now COVID. Of course. And you were speaking of it's good to be knowledgeable. And uh, where would you say for the listeners to acquire this knowledge because I think there are definitely good places and not so great places to acquire knowledge about these topics. Yeah, I think it depends specifically on which topic you're interested in. I think the Centers for Disease Control tends to have pretty good information about HIV, about COVID. I think for substance use, there are a lot of really good organizations. For example, the Drug Policy Alliance has a lot of helpful information about not just what the policies are, but where to access services. I think also making sure people just more than anything go to places that are reputable. And so whether that is something that is published through a university, through something like Health and Human Services or the Centers for Disease Control, like, you know, please God, don't just like go to Google and ask a question and expect that anything you're going to get is accurate. So, and I think in this era now where things are so charged across all aspects of, you know, politics and health is just thinking about where you get that information from and being skeptical unless it is a known and trusted source. Okay, perfect. And I think that's a great place to lead off. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Feldman. This has been a fantastic interview. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Oh, no problem. And uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the ride and we'll see you next time.